Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pages of HR. I'm your host, Bianca Heron, lead editor at HR Daily Advisor. This podcast provides insightful conversations about HR-related books with the writers who create them. By the end of these conversations, we hope that you'll have actionable insights for your business, best practices to tap, and new information to ponder. Today's episode is a special one. It's Black History Month, and it's the perfect time for HR leaders to assess their company's DEI efforts. According to our guest today, it takes more to be an ally than adding a statement of inclusion to a website. DEI efforts must be embedded in the ground floor of an organization. I'm super excited to be joined by Dr. Nika White. She's an award-winning management and leadership consultant, keynote speaker, published author, and executive practitioner for DEI efforts in business, government, nonprofit, as well as education. She's also president and CEO of Nika White Consulting. The focus of Dr. White's consulting work is to create professional spaces where people can collaborate through a lens of compassion, empathy, and understanding. And these traits, in my opinion, are needed now more than ever as violence and injustice are skyrocketing, institutions are collapsing, and the outcomes of systemic oppression go viral daily. Today, we're talking about her timely new book, Inclusion Uncomplicated, a transformative guide to simplify DEI. If you'd like to learn more about how your organization can simplify DEI and make true change, today's episode is especially for you. So let's just get into it, shall we? Dr. Wyatt, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing very well, Bianca. Thanks so much for having me and um, happy Black History Month. Absolutely. Uh, I I wish I could have like all my strawberry punch right now, but I'm going to get to (laughs) that later. (laughs) Uh, Please tell me, Dr. Wyatt. Tell me, what inspired you to write this timely book? Oh, that's a great question. And thank you for allowing me to lead in with um, responding to this question. So Inclusion Uncomplicated is um, my love letter, my love letter to all of those that care deeply about centering humanity, but perhaps they need some help and guidance for um, being equipped to do that effectively. I find that there are a number of people who sit on the sidelines and do not engage in this work because of the complexity of the work. It feels very daunting. And people are afraid they're going to make a mistake or they're afraid that they're going to be criticized. And so as a practitioner in this space, I really wanted people to be able to have a way to demystify these constructs of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which would make it easier for them to engage and to endure the process of being a part of the work, being influencers of the work, being able to model the work, and then to bring others along. And so it is all about giving people a tool that they can reference from time to time. I don't want this to be a book that you know people will read from start to finish then place it on the bookshelf to never revisit it again. I want it to be something that remains on the desk and that people are dog-earing the pages, they're writing in the margins, they're going back to it and reflecting on it. And so um, I was inspired because being in this space and this work, I knew that part of getting others involved and engaged in effective ways was to help demystify those constructs. I love that. Thank you. Of course, stumbling through the pages of your book, a, a quote that I stumbled upon, DI cannot be viewed as a problem that can be solved in a box ticked. Being a true ally is not just saying that everyone deserves opportunity, it's creating the opportunities that counts. Yeah. That's amazing. Could you expound a bit on that for me, please? 
I'd love to. Um, it's all about intentionality. Yeah. You know, I think that the word intentional is one of my favorite words in the vocabulary. I think there's so much power behind the word intentional intent, intentionality, any variation thereof. It has a certain look about it, right? It's, it's calculated. It's strategic. It requires belief and a process um, and that there is a reward on the other side. We cannot be passive about the work of inclusion and creating opportunities. It is the separator of what gets done and what gets thought about getting done. <laughs> and so, you know, really this is, this is about getting people to be self-reflective around what is my personal responsibility and accountability in this work. We often will stand back and see it as the responsibility of someone else, right? Maybe the person that carries the title of chief diversity officer, manager, director, or leader in an organization, or maybe even the HR professionals. But this work belongs to all of us. And I believe we all should have a heart and a will and a desire to want to be an advocate, an ally. An allyship at bare minimum is action. It's not just rhetorical reassurance. You know, but it is action. And so intentionality certainly is um, inextricably related to that. Yes. I've got pom-poms and chills up and down my spine right now for you. Absolutely. Wholeheartedly agree. But also, if I may here, uh, you talk about this personal accountability, excuse me, personal accountability and responsibility um, that leaders should have, of course, paired, coupled rather, uh, with that intention. I'm also hearing a lot of a lot of excuse me excitement mindfulness as well, and you really can't do any of that without being mindful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this work, Bianca, it starts at the personal level, right? You know, individuals are the ones who make up organizations, and as part of making up those organizations, they're the ones who shaping culture, who building system processes, procedures, right? Who are leading people, and hopefully are emulating and modeling the right way of leadership. And certainly I believe that inclusive leadership is very much a part of that. And so we we have to make sure we're centering humanity when we talk about this work of equity and inclusion. There's not a zero sum game. This work belongs to all of us. It helps to positively impact all spaces and all people. And a rising tide lifts all boats, right? When we can provide a sense of psychological safety and opportunity for full success for all, then we're going to have environments where people have a sense of belonging. And when people belong and they don't have to question whether or not they belong at a certain environment, then they're bringing their A game. They're showing up ready to support. They're showing up feeling fulfilled and like they're well supported. And I think that's what helps to create environments where a culture of inclusion and belonging can be endured. We, we have forgotten about the stick to witness nature, if you will. I know I'm making up a word here, but we've forgotten about the importance of that. And I believe that that endurance has a lot to do with how well are we equipping ourselves to be change agents of this work, right? So when I talk about leadership from a standpoint of equity and inclusion, it's not by positionality or title. It's more by mindfulness around our individual responsibility. If we are mindful of how we show up, of um, our own learning journey, and how we need to bridge the gap within our learning journey, then I think that we can better position ourselves to be effective allies, to show up in a way that allows others to be able to feel supported, seen, and heard, and valued. And that is what mindfulness 
is designed to do when we talk about it in the context of DEI. If we can manage ourselves, we can manage and we can lead others. And part of this work is managing ourselves so that we can model for others how we show up in a way that is inclusive. Absolutely. I love that. Uh, you're going to just see me cheesing this whole episode. I'm just telling you that right now. I love that. But before we move into your excerpt, of course, you've said many profound, uh, awesome things in my book here. Uh, but you touched on something uh, that I think, at least for me, the first time that I'm hearing so many of us talk about in the workplace, you said censoring humanity. I've never heard humanity mentioned this much ever quite frankly, in the workplace, you know? And I think that is, while COVID did bring a lot of unfortunate things and tragedy, a silver lining of it was really placing a light, shining a light on what's important. And at the end of the day, we're all human. We're all, we all have hearts. We all have blood running through our veins. Uh, Is that something that you're seeing now in conversations, perhaps in, in your work, talking about humanity in the workplace and the value of it and reminding people that's where we are? I will definitely say so, Bianca. I think that um, the pandemic has certainly caused many of us to lean more into um, our empathy and compassion. Um, We know that many marginalized communities have been disproportionately impacted. And so when we talk about centering humanity, it just places the emphasis on the fact that everyone deserves at the bare minimum to feel respected, seen, heard, and valued, regardless of human difference, right? I think the reason sometimes that talking about difference or diversity divides us is because of how we classify diversity or difference, which is we classify it sometimes as right, wrong, good or bad, inferior, superior, instead of just seeing it as humanity. We are all humans and deserving of the basic needs of belonging, acceptance, full opportunity for success. So I am a big fan of reframing and um, evolving the language a bit to where it focuses on um, humanity. And that's not to say that we can't give emphasis and amplify the needs of the most marginalized, because I think that that is important. And as a practitioner in the space of DEI, it is all ultimately for the goal of justice and how justice shows forth within workplaces Mm -hmm. is when we can center equity. Yes. And so I bring that to the conversation because sometimes even when you use language like let's be human centered, sometimes it can cause people to perceive that now we're trying to minimize the needs of the most marginalized. And that's not it. You know, for me, it is about we have to make sure that we are centering the needs of the most marginalized. But at the same time, I think that part of getting people to that place is to put it into the context of being human centered. I love that. Absolutely. A great segue here now uh, for you to read your excerpt that you prepared, please. Great. I would love to. I would love to. And and thanks for giving me the chance to read it. I am actually pulling um, a couple excerpts from the introduction of my book. I think that it does a really good job of setting the stage and the tone. And so that's that's where I'm going to start. I may skip around a little bit, but um, yeah, here we go. Leave no one behind. Is more than just a phrase or affirmation to reflect upon. This organizing principle drives every aspect of my leadership in the diversity, equity, and inclusion field and is embedded in the ways I show up personally and professionally to do this critical work. As an award-winning leadership consultant, entrepreneur, Black woman, and devoted mother of a neurodivergent son and a strong activist daughter, 
I consider DEI to be much more than a career choice. On one hand, it is my lived experience as a multi-generational minority with the dominant culture that systematically disadvantages people like me. On the other, it is within that same dominant system that I became an educated global expert because of college-focused parents and a commitment to generational wealth. This unique perspective enables me to understand conditions within both dominant and non-dominant cultures. I've inhabited both all my life and can now tease out parts of the systems and entrenched beliefs that gets us all knotted up, frayed and disoriented inside and out. It is the act of fully unraveling the yarn, straightening and pulling taut the raw fibers that bind humanity and belongingness that we remember we are intertwined and interdependent. Gonna skip ahead. The themes we will explore in this book mirror the greater undoing already set in motion since 2020 and 2021 after the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer and the blatant racial disparities that surfaced during the COVID-19 pandemic. Public outcry sounded the alarm. Enough was enough fueling mass awareness and social media movements that demanded corporations and society at large to proactively address systemic racism. Compliance-oriented diversity training has existed within large corporations since the 1980s, but DEI now has become a mainstream buzzword in an $8 billion industry. I'm gonna skip ahead once again. This is the last portion. DEI is complicated, but it doesn't have to feel that way. My primary reason for writing this book is to demystify DEI concepts so that leaders, champions, and change makers like you can own practical, actionable tools to make a real difference right now. The heart of my work is to help create transformative environments with intentionality around inclusion. This book will teach you how to do that personally and professionally. In the chapters ahead, you will find concrete advice and easy to follow steps that I've developed from more than 20 years in DEI leadership. I've defined the number one barrier to DEI success, detailed steps that guarantee inclusion, shared common organizational mistakes and revealed unexpected opportunities. You will learn from real life workplace mistakes and successes, hear revealing stories from diverse voices and upgrade your skill set to contribute to systems change. Think of this as a trusted guide you can return to at any time to avoid common pitfalls, to navigate through tricky situations, and to show up intentionally so action equals impact. As you needle through each page, you'll undo learned behaviors that entangle us in the webs of racism, discrimination, and confusion. Yeah, so you probably are familiar with the fact that Part of the premise of the book is, um, you know, this imagery around unraveling the knot that binds humanity together. Yes. And that's precisely what I want people to experience. I want the light bulb to, to go off as people were reading. I want them to feel like now this big ball of complexity and this big ball of chaos is starting to unravel and, be, and shrink and become smaller and smaller and smaller. And so hopefully by the end of the book, people will feel better prepared um, to do this work in a much more effective way. Absolutely. I love that. And I love the the, the gnarly uh, yarn ball, <laughs> if you will, the, the, the metaphor there. It's amazing. 
you said that the book also touches on common organizational mistakes and pitfalls. Wow. Uh, and of course, thumbing through myself, I know that you are also tackling an inclusion uncomplicated is the latest research on what works and what doesn't work. Could you give an example or two about those common organizational mistakes and what works or what doesn't work? Absolutely. I think one big one is the mindset that people have when they're starting this process. It is a journey. It's, there's not a destination. So one of the mistakes is feeling as though um, we can check a couple boxes and then now all of a sudden everything has been solved for relevant to diversity, equity, and inclusion or lack thereof, and we can just walk away. And so this goes back to what I mentioned earlier regarding the endurance factor. I want people to realize that this is work. It is ongoing work. It's ongoing journey. So shifting our mindset to understand that I think makes this work less daunting at, at the onset. I talk about it in the book as we have to see this work as not an obligation, right? Where we're going to do the bare minimum and then move on, but we have to see it as an opportunity. And when we shift our mindset from obligation to opportunity, then I think that the traction and the momentum has greater staying power, if you will, because now we have a desire to do this work because we have reconciled the benefits of it, right? The value proposition behind it versus I'm doing it because um, I'm going to be criticized if I don't, right? The obligation type aspect. The other thing I talk about in the book is by way of a mistake that a lot of organizations make is um, failing to collect the data. You have to have a baseline of where you are in order to know where you want to go, right? And so many organizations are afraid to collect the data. And what I have found is that oftentimes the reason for that is because they know that the picture may be bleak, right? They know that maybe they aren't doing all that they can and all that they should. And so they fear that it's going to shine a negative light. And what I often tell organizations is that everybody has a starting point. It doesn't mean that because you collect the data, that you are expected to overnight address all things, right? Um, but it does show a commitment towards understanding, not at a surface level, but really peeling back all the layers and getting to the root causes of those issues, which sends a strong message of commitment towards addressing the root cause. And that is a message that allows people who really champion this work to believe the credibility of the sentiments of leadership when they say, now we're going to do something about this over time. So don't be afraid of the data. Shift the mindset from obligation to opportunity, number one. And number two, don't be afraid of the data and then let the data inform a path forward plan. I love that. I love that. And of course, I think like we've all established already, DEI is a big box to unpack uh, on a myriad, in a myriad of ways uh, in various levels. I'm sticking to uh, with, <laughs> with the untangling of, of the threads here. How can HR leaders evolve DEIB from a checkbox, checkbox item, excuse me, like you said, to an environment where it's woven into the fabric of, a, of their culture? I love this question, Bianca, because it shows the significance of DEI not being a singular initiative or program on its own, but it being fully embedded into the DNA of the organization, fully integrated and operationalized. So the first thing that I would say is that um, if this work within an organization belongs to um, HR department, 
I think that in and of itself is an opportunity because this work does not only impact HR, it does impact all areas of the organization. So if HR are the ones who are leading the charge, then first and foremost, creating those strategic alliances with other department heads so that they can embed a lens of DEI into the work of those specific disciplines and areas. The second thing that I would say is that you can't solve for the challenges of DEI singularly by um, addressing the learning um, and development aspect. That is one, and it's really important. It's a great way to get everyone aligned and to coalesce around you know, common language. You know, We can't assume that everybody's even defining those terms the same way. So I do believe that the learning experiences and training is critically important. And my firm, we don't like the word training. It sounds like a destination. And so for us, we like to use language like learning and development experiences. And they can look differently because people learn and receive and resonate with information in different ways. But I think going back to the question, those HR professionals need to have be operating under a parallel path. We have to train and teach and lead and develop people around these constructs. But then equally important, we have to influence and change systems, policies, procedures, and culture. Um, and sometimes the bigger wins come from shifting the behaviors and aligning people around certain protocols. And then hopefully, when you also layer on top of that the education factor, People are not just doing it because they're expected to do it a certain way, but they're doing it because they also understand the why behind it. And they're moved by the why. They're moved by the human-centered approach as to why we're doing this this way. And so I think those are the two really important ways that HR professionals can lean into this work in a deeper way is to create those strategic alliances so that it is fully infiltrated throughout the organization and to make sure that they are aligning the, the learning component to bring people along with this parallel path of bridging the gap around, you know, changing policy systems, procedures, and culture. I love that. I love that. And I think this is a great segue into another topic uh, that Inclusion Uncomplicated discusses, which is strategies for untangling that null thread of bias. Yeah. You mentioned too. I don't, personally, I don't think I hear enough talk about like microaggressions and unconscious no. bias in workspaces. Yeah. And there's nothing micro at all about, you know, aggression and inequities and assaults. And, you know, it's defined sometimes as um, the death of a thousand paper cuts, you know, one or two, it's one thing, but mm -hmm. when you keep hitting that same spot over and over again, right, yeah. it, it hurts and, um, and the bleeding is deep. And so we have to consider that when, when, you know, talking about shifting culture and policies and procedures to help provide a safer environment for people to show up at their best. The reality, Bianca, is that bias is not something that escapes any of us. I mean, we all have a propensity for bias to show up, but it also does not exonerate us from the consequences of our actions, which is why it's so important to make sure we are providing um, training and, and development opportunities for people to know how to spot it and what to do to combat it. And also know what to do when bias does create harm, because again, it's going to happen. Um, but what do we do in that moment to restore the relationship, to make sure that that harm does not continue to occur? And so I think it's critically important for organizations to certainly build their systems around equipping people to know what to look for and to know what inclusive behaviors look like. 
at my firm in WC, I like to talk about unconscious bias in the affirmative. So I like to say conscious inclusion, right? You know, almost just flip it. Let's be consciously inclusive. And, um, and sometimes, you know, again, that reframe can make a, a difference as well. Absolutely. And I love that. I was just actually about to harken back to that as well. Uh, I'm consistently hearing you talking about reframing and evolving the language. And it sounds like it's absolutely important, right? And absolutely uh, necessary because if it's the language, if we're not getting it, you know, in this one manner or this one way, it's absolutely necessary to change it, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, Bianca, I have a love-hate relationship with the language, you know, and I'll tell you why. I say a love-hate relationship because, I mean, the language of diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's it came on the scene as a result of trying to address issues, you know, post-civil rights movement, right? And now it has morphed into a lot of other things. I don't ever want to forget the, the genesis of how it came to be. I'm also clearly aware that in some spaces, those words have lost its power because they've just been tossed around into where people have a lot of misinformation that they're holding in mind about those constructs to where it causes them to disengage, right? And I never want that to be a barrier or reason for someone to not be on this journey in the manner in which they should be. So for me, I have to be very selective about the times in which I may evolve the language depending upon the organization, the people I'm talking to, the circumstances. And so it is a love-hate relationship sometimes. You know, there are many people that have changed the language. You know, now they've added other letters to, you know, DEI, there's the J for justice, which I think that the whole, you know, purpose of the work is justice as the outcome. If it's not, to me, it's not true DEI work. You know, there's a lot of people that are adding the word A for accessibility. And I get all of that. But I feel like part of the why behind evolving it is to try to maybe soften it in some regards. But then for some people, it's also about Let's just throw everything under the kitchen sink, you know, and let it let it just evolve into all the things. And I feel like sometimes that can create confusion. And again, part of what I feel like my role is as a practitioner is to help demystify, to uncomplicate it. So that's what I mean by having this love-hate relationship with do we evolve the language or do we not? I think it depends on the circumstances and the people that are a part of those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love that and completely agree. Uh, it's <laughs> a lot, but you got to do what's necessary when you feel the time is right. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. I love that. Uh, we pretty much unpacked a lot here. Uh, and I have one more question for you which is my okay. final question I mentioned. But before sure. I get to that, Dr. Nika, is there anything else that you'd like to add or talk about? Um, well, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to share with um, with your, your audience. A couple of things that I would love for um, the listeners to know is that um, Nika White Consulting, we are a full service diversity, equity, and inclusion boutique consultancy. And we intersect the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business, working with all types of clients, as I mentioned before. Um, would love to be of support to anyone that's seeking a partner to help um help them on that DEI journey, um, offer a lot of courtesy resources just to help individuals deepen their their knowledge and their understanding. And so I want to put into the hearing of this audience um, our vodcast that we do every week called Intentional Conversations. And um, 
It's where we bring on guests, co-hosts who are practitioners in this space, and we just unpack conversations that intersect DEI with leadership and business. And um, so the replays are actually available. We've been doing this for the past you know, few years now. We also take the audio and we make it available in a podcast capacity for those who like to get their, their, um, their content that way. And um, if anyone is interested in learning more about those courtesy opportunities, then you can simply go to nikolite.com. And um, yeah, thank you for, for asking that question and giving me a moment to share. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, Inclusion Uncomplicated, can they get the book there at your website or is it on Amazon? Yeah. So Inclusion Uncomplicated, which just happens to be book number three for me, it's um, published by Forbes Books. It's available on Amazon, um, online at Target and Barnes and Nobles, basically anywhere you like to purchase your books, you can get Inclusion Uncomplicated. And um, I would love to be in conversation with anyone that happens to pick it up and, you know, would love to, to dialogue around what you're learning, how you're processing, how you're reflecting, and how you're thinking of ways in which you can apply and influence some of the, the concepts in the book. I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that. Okay. Thank you for sharing. My final question for you, Dr. Nika White. What does your next chapter look like? Oh, what does my next chapter look like? You know, I am on this journey right now of really centering a message of um, becoming more useful, more useful to my community, more useful to my family, more useful to my discipline, my industry, more useful in the marketplace, just becoming more useful in any way. And um, so I think my next chapter is just centered on how can I, you know, continue to position myself to be able to do that to become more useful. And when I align that with the work that I do of, you know, inclusion and equity and belonging, it's a simple message, but it speaks volumes to how much more we can offer. I don't believe that we are meant to be in isolation. We are meant to be in community with each other. So a mindset of becoming more useful in whatever spaces we show up is, I believe is my next chapter, yeah. I love that. I love that. Uh, Dr. White, I truly appreciate your time today, and I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've, I've enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Remember, you can always follow us on Twitter at HR Pages, and we're also now available on iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Audible. Again, I'm Bianca Heron. Join us next time when we turn the page. <laughs>